Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Chris and I have been greatly enjoying and getting a lot out of the emails and messages that you've been sending us. And today I wanted to share a couple episode ideas that folks have sent us that I think are actually really great. One person wrote in and said, I've always been curious about identifying and treating mental illness early on. There's little literature I can find about this. What might you notice in your child from a very early age? Yeah, I actually have a couple episodes planned over the next few months where parents are going to talk about the signs and early stages of their child's prodromal or early illness, how that developed, and also some wisdom and thoughts for parents and families who might be dealing with that kind of thing. Another excellent idea we got from a listener is this. My episode's suggestion is a story that explores how psychiatric disorders affect families and intimate relationships. Maybe a future episode might include a couple that explains how they deal with mental illness in their relationship. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, and we're definitely going to explore that here in the next few months. So thank you for those two ideas, listeners. And again, we really enjoy getting emails, what you like about Back from the Abyss, suggestions for stories creative but kind criticism anything that you'd like to share with us and you can do that through the bft website bftapodcast.com or through my website craigheacockmd.com in this story annie tells her journey of starting off as a happy carefree child until the tragic suicide of her mentally ill father when she was nine years old to then pretending for years that she was just fine by overachieving and smiling and reassuring others but all that time falling deeply and secretly into the two loves of her life, alcohol and cutting. For a time, these extremely powerful coping strategies worked for her until they didn't, and she then had to do the hard work of therapy to find a new way to live. Today, Annie is a clinical psychologist, and she uses that well of darkness and healing to share her compassion, wisdom, and hope with others. A note about the word dysregulation. Annie uses this word frequently, both to describe her inability to regulate her mood states, as well as her powerlessness to avoid slipping into the numbed parasympathetic state that we call dissociation. I knew my dad wasn't, wasn't well. I mean, he just didn't seem happy. And, but I didn't really understand uh, what was going on. And I remember going to see him in the hospital. He had attempted suicide, and and I didn't really understand it because, you know, he had a wound, and trying to understand what was wrong with him, I just didn't get it. And I remember people saying, you know, well, your your father is sick, and and that I I didn't understand that because he didn't look sick. You know, you're still just my dad, and um, so and then eventually one night we couldn't find him. And I don't know why my sister and I were apart, but I got a call from her. I remember it was a big black rotary phone. I was on the phone and she just said, dad's dead. And I think I screamed and um, he had died by suicide. And, you know, I feel like right then my personality, my life, my you know, like the rug was pulled out from under me. It, nothing made sense anymore. And he was just gone of this mysterious illness that was 
uh, unnoticeable to me or not understandable to me. How old were you? I was nine. Nine. Yeah. Such a tender age. Yeah. My mom told me that I didn't, I kind of pretended it didn't happen. And, you know, the day of the funeral, I was upstairs playing and she came up and said, uh, it's time to go to the funeral. And I said, I, I don't have anything to go to today or something like that. And so I, I didn't, I don't know if I was completely dissociated, but, uh, you know, just not present with what was happening. And yeah, I mean, I changed after that. I was not, I became an introvert. I don't know if that's possible. You just go right from extrovert to introvert. And, um, but it felt like I did. And just, I think the, that was the beginning of a self loathing and not, it wasn't necessarily that I blame myself. I remember I made him cry once and that has still stuck with me that I remember him crying and I don't remember what I did. Uh, and I remember just watching him from the stairs, you know, crying in his chair. And so I know there was part of it that was like, you know, what could I have done different? Or I think it was more, why couldn't I be good enough? Why wasn't I good enough? Why weren't we good enough? You know, first he left us and then he left the world. So after that, um, I, I was very good at school and I put all my effort into school. I was super good at math and, uh, you know, came home and studied and that was most of what I did. And, um, I had friends and stuff, but there was this, uh, I guess darkness, um, that was just there, this void. And it was partially just the loss and the grief, but partially this, lack of understanding of, of why something like that happens. So on the outside, maybe you looked okay. You were doing well in school. You're working hard, succeeding. Yeah. On the inside, what was happening? I felt like I was, I wasn't, uh, I didn't know how much pain was there. I didn't understand it. And then, uh, but I think starting at puberty, especially when there's hormones and, and, emotional ups and downs. And, you know, I started to realize that I am uh, just the consciousness of, of emptiness and sadness and not being like other kids. And just a, yeah, the a darkness that was there. And so just kind of a, it felt, it felt since I was nine, like a slow death inside. I mean, that sounds very dramatic, but... No. But I was wondering, Annie, do you remember it as more of a numbness or more of a sadness? Because a lot of people who go through terrible traumas as a kid will Mm -hmm. say they didn't really feel anything except Mm -hmm. nothing. I would say from 9 to about 12 or 13, it was numbness. Because I don't remember much from that period uh, of time. And... You know, I look back and I see some of the things that I did during that time. I don't remember them. I don't have, like, conscious memories from that period. It, w- it really wasn't until 12 or 13 that it became sadness. And what I later would learn the term dysregulation, which was is so perfect to describe my, you know, 12, 13-year-old self, is just not able to have emotions and just being so 
overcome by my emotions. Mm-hmm. I hated myself yeah. and hated every thought that I had and every emotion I had, every sensation that I had and did anything I could to get out of my head. And honestly, it was a lot of self-protection of my family or not self-protection, protection of my family. Like I want to, I don't want them to see my sadness because they'll, you know, and I don't think that was conscious, but, you know, emotions I knew were surrounded by pain for others. And so, you know, I hid them and went to my room a lot and cried and, and, you know, I dealt with it myself because I didn't want them to have to deal with it. Yeah. Was this about the time now emerging adolescence where you discovered self-harm? It was. And um, that was a game changer for me. You know, that I, I sometimes say that this is a dramatic thing too, but the two loves of my life were self-injury and alcohol. And this was the first one. And I remember when I discovered it, my sister had said something that upset me. Um, and I started feeling bad about myself and was just that dysregulation is the best word I can think of it is this like energy inside of pain and hatred and uh, just not knowing what to do with it and feeling I was going crazy and popping out of my skin. And I don't know why I grabbed a set of keys and I ran to the back of the yard. We had this giant yard and sat kind of in a bush. And for some reason I just started scratching myself with the keys kind of, and, um, and instantly, I was. I remember sitting there and thinking, "I'm okay. Mm-hmm. I can do this. I'm okay now." It was a discharge that my thinking was different. I, I realized I have taken care of the problem, mm. you know. And I went back in and I you put. F- you found control. I did. Yeah. I went back in, put the keys on the counter, and I was okay. And. Then I started, you know, thinking about it and, you know, went to, uh, to cutting and, um, it was my own little secret. Uh, it wasn't something, you know, back then it was, it wasn't something, you know, in the eighties that people talked about then, you know, I didn't know what self-injury was. I don't think, I don't know if that was the term. I'm sure, you know, it was, but not with me. And so I thought I had discovered this like weird secret thing that helped me um, function. And so when I would get upset, that's what I would do. And it would take care of the problem and it would discharge the energy, the emotions, it would change how I'm thinking. And I would be able to go back again. You know, that was always in my room or somewhere hidden and then just go back out and be fine and be able to be a regular person. And it, it worked for a long time. I, I felt crazy was a word that started to come up for me because I knew it wasn't something I, other people seemed to do. Um, at least I never saw other people have cuts or scars or things like that, you know, and I always did it in places that people couldn't see. But that level of emotion and, and that, that behavior I, I knew was weird. Mm-hmm. What exactly did it do for adolescent you? For me personally, I think there was definitely an aspect of punishment of I've done something bad. 
and this is the punishment and then it's it's done it's discharged i took care of it took care of it that's a term i always thought i'm gonna go take care of this and so it was definitely an expression of of self-hatred so there was it was anger but it was self you know directed toward myself and it was a way to discharge the the anger the rage really that so it was letting something out um it was this is how bad you are how bad this hurts and it was Someone said once, I think I was in a college class, an outward manifestation of an inward spiritual state. And I don't even know what they were talking about. But when I heard that, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's like, that's like kidding. And I didn't want people to see it. I wanted, you know, me to feel it because then I could feel it when I was walking around. I could feel the scab and the scar. And, you know, um, I knew I had taken care of things. When, when do you think it began to get out of control? Because it sounds like maybe in those early months and years, it was something that you had some mastery over, over and when you would get dysregulated, you had this strategy. Mm-hmm. But then it started to take on a life of its own and, mm-hmm. and took control of you. Oh, I think I successfully hit it and it was a controlled behavior probably until I started drinking. Um, and then it got out of control and it became messier. And, you know, I was a person who knew, you know, I learned how to do it cleanly so that people wouldn't see any evidence. And it didn't work that way when I was super drunk, you know. Mm-hmm. And so probably, you know, 17-ish when I started, I was a late bloomer for drinking. And that's when it started getting out of control. And people started to, would you know, I'd make mistakes I guess Mm -hmm. is how it felt like and people would see evidence of it and um the shame then became more severe because it wasn't just I'm crazy it's like other people know I'm crazy Mm. so they they um they coexisted I mean we've heard some people on this podcast talk about sort of switching from drugs to eating disorder Mm -hmm. to other compulsive behavior self-harm and almost like Mm -hmm. whack-a-mole yeah but but for you, maybe that's not the way it was. It was more the self-harm started and then the alcohol came in and then they fueled each other. Is that or or did they feel like they had a separate life of their own? Um, yeah, I guess they, they fueled each other. The cutting just wasn't quite doing it as well as it used to. And I wanted more. And then when I the first time I drank alcohol and blacked out the first night, I drank it and wanted to do it every day. After that, I remember thinking, this is, this is how people live. This is how they do it, is they drink, you know? And re- thinking, oh, well, this is, looks much better than, than the cutting. So that became the next love affair. So I think it was the next coping skill or control skill. And so, and then they did feel each other, you know, because... At some point, you know, for a while, I the drinking and I wouldn't want to hurt myself. But then um, over time, when the depression stuck around, the cutting would get worse when I was drunk. Mm-hmm. And so then... Did they serve different purposes for different kinds of dysregulation or different emotions? Or, I mean, was it 
uh, or was it more that um, it's more the magnitude, like maybe alcohol is the day in, day out mm-hmm. love, but then you could always add self-harm mm-hmm. on top of that. I think alcohol was about trying. My goal was apathy. <laughs> you know, it was when I drank, I just didn't care about anything. I didn't care who I, that I was crazy. I didn't care if I was looked the way I did, you know, just apathy, like, who cares what people say or do or think of me or what I say or do or think it, it doesn't matter. And the cutting I think was more about anger, mm. self you know, all the anger and rage that I had about my life. And, and, uh, it was about a, an a discharge of anger. You've mentioned at least three times you've mentioned that you felt crazy or that you mm. thought you were crazy. And, and, mm-hmm. and what do you mean by that? When what, what kind of crazy were you self-labeling or believing? Mm-hmm. I guess just not like other people, not normal. There is that that component is I'm different from other people and I don't fit. I don't fit in anywhere. I pretend I'm was like chameleon you know I can be this way with this person this way with this person to look okay to look like I fit so part of it was knowing the secret you know that the secret of the pain and the hatred inside of me and the behaviors that I was doing and then so that was part of the crazy and then the other crazy is and this is hard to explain even even you know now having much more language around it it's And I still, you know, it's that dysregulation. And what it is, is like a surge, like a wave of a lot of self-hatred and just feeling out of control, just feeling like nothing is okay. The world is awful. I'm awful. Everything about me is awful. I don't want to be here. I don't want to live. I just want to go in a hole. I just want to explode. I want to, that was a thing. If felt like I was going to explode, mm-hmm. you know, just at some point, you know, I remember a therapist telling me like, well, those feelings aren't going to kill you. And I was like, I'm not so sure about that. That sounds like I it. remember thinking I was like, it felt so strong that put like my heart would explode or something. Yeah. That, was so. that, was that your daily experience mm-hmm. for years? Yeah. And it was lower level, more like sadness, like a a sadness and just a hopelessness. Hopelessness is like my go, my go-to emotion. And then usually when something would, what I felt demonstrate that I'm no good, that I would say something that hurt someone or I would do something wrong, or I would see evidence that other people were more lovable. That's when the wave would come. And I had no control over that. I mean, I knew it was coming. I knew how it had to end, you know, by taking care of it. So, it and to taking care of yeah, it was cutting or alcohol something. or cutting. Yeah. And, it, and was it the kind of thing that you, you know, you're, you're getting hit daily with these waves of just poison, self-loathing, emotional dysregulations, just, as you said, you feel like it could kill you. Mm-hmm. Is it the kind of thing you're thinking, okay, 
what can I do right now? Can I drink? Mm -hmm. Can I cut? Can I, I do need both? something? Something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when I was into both at the same time, my my ability to tolerate little frustrations or little things was just pretty nil. And so it was pretty common daily experience at that point and hard to hide. It became harder and harder to hide the pain. And I started talking about pain to people. And I remember how uncomfortable people who got close to me would be around me. I mean, intense was always the word. They're like, Annie's intense. And I... both of those And both of those behaviors really push people away. They do. I mean, heavy drinking, blackout drinking, mm -hmm. and cutting. Mm -hmm. And cutting, particularly with any kind of intimate partners, mm -hmm. it's... That's a hard thing to explain mm -hmm. to your to your lover or partner why you're covered with scars. Yeah, I always lied. I, I don't remember. Oh, I got myself shaving, which I actually thought was accurate because if I was using a razor blade, I thought, well, you know, that's kind of true. But I would come up with lies uh, depending on what the most recent cut looked like. Just got adept at moving in a way that people didn't see stuff and, you know... I think I put makeup on the scars sometimes. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I had the sense that I desperately wanted to be close to people and wanted people to see, to be present with me and, and desperately wanted, you know, to be loved and cared about. And, but yet I knew that what I was doing and the way I talked, uh, it was mainly like the words I, I said, some very disturbing things to some about my desires to hurt myself to people who I cared about, especially when I was drunk. And that does not foster a good, no one wants to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Talking to the 19-year-old you, the 21-year-old you, if we had asked, hey, Annie, what would be harder to give up, cutting or alcohol? Hmm. I think because I drank more frequently at that time, I remember once it was Lent and someone, I said, oh, I'm going to give up smoking for Lent. I was a smoker and, and uh, my friend's mom said, why don't you give up the alcohol? And my response was, wait. Uh, that's like giving up water. I can't, that, that, that it seemed un, inconceivable that I could give that up. But, oh, I don't know though, the, the cutting, if, if I had to say you can never do that again, that would have been a pretty mm -hmm. tough ask. Mm -hmm. Because now you're, you're sober from alcohol. How many years? 15. 15. Yeah. And I, I want to talk in a few minutes about how that happened. Mm -hmm. But you said to me just even before we, when we met and then before this recording, you said that cutting self-harm is still something that's on the back burner. It's not happening. It hasn't mm -hmm. happened in a while, but it's, it's not gone. N not entirely. No, it's, um, I had a therapist once who said, you know, recovery is from anything is that your terrible experiences get less frequent and less severe. And that's absolutely true. So for me, the feeling, the wave feeling is less intense and less frequent. But when those happen, the thoughts that flash through my mind, the urges I have are all around 
causing myself some kind of pain and or hurting myself in some way and not really I don't really have a lot of every once in a while I'll see someone doing shots or something and think like oh I don't remember that <laughs> but that does I don't have like a, a obsession about that or craving or urge or but yeah there's there's still a draw I mean I'm I call myself 80 percent sane now <laughs> um and with the 20 percent is the part of you that would still yeah that's love, still love to, love to self-harm it's still there and that's not it doesn't feel like today for example I I feel pretty sane um and I don't have a desire to do that but you know when I right now my sadness hopelessness is I call it PMH, premenstrual hopelessness, because I only get one symptom of PMS, and that's hopelessness. It's just abject hopelessness, and it comes for a couple days, and those waves come, and everything hurts again, and and that's when I think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't acted on it in, to be honest, probably two years, mm-hmm. um, and I haven't actually physically cut myself in much longer than that, um, mm-hmm. but that's when I it flashes as images mm-hmm. let's go back again and hear a little bit about how you went from years of dysregulation and self-loathing and hopelessness and as you said feeling like you could actually die from how horrible you Mm -hmm. felt cutting and drinking yourself into blackout how did what was the process therapeutically of starting to move towards some sort of ability to regulate some some kind of Mm self-compassion well i started having bottoms i had a bottom with cutting on a bottom, some bottoms with alcohol. And I ended up, you know, having a couple psych hospitalizations. And the funny thing about those is they, during those, they only talked about mental health and no one ever asked me how much I drank. So I didn't even link the two. I didn't even think they were related. I thought alcohol was the solution and mental health was the problem. So until I got assigned to this one therapist and she had me do these things called diary cards and you had to rate how much do you want to kill yourself today? It was every day. How much do you want to hurt yourself today? And uh, how it had, it had on there, how much do you drink? And so I always put, uh, I just, I said, I thought I'd be honest. So I put 12 plus and I you know, showed it, gave them to her and she said, is this one to two? a day and I said no that's 12 and she said well what's the plus and I said well that's about when I black out so I'm not sure how how many it is after that mm-hmm. <laughs> she just put the card down and looked at me she, I, I was already hooked with her she was so awesome and so just amazing as a therapist and she looked at me and she said I'm the wrong therapist if you're gonna keep drinking like that and I was just no mm-hmm. no please <laughs> anything but that mm-hmm. She got me, she was in Al-Anon and she got me to go to a 12-step meeting. I was, I somehow stayed sober for like four and a half years after my first meeting. And that was the beginning of recovery. I realized that, you know, drinking and drugs were part of the problem. But did the, in those early years of sobriety, did the 
dysregulation, self-loathing, cutting, that that all continued? The cutting decreased, um, I think, because, you know, my inhibitions weren't down, my judgment was better, my insight was better. But the self-loathing, the sadness was still there. It was just this persistent sadness. You know, I really didn't think I was powerless over alcohol. I thought alcohol was the solution that worked for a while and it stopped working. But I, I just I, needed to figure out a way to manage yeah, it. Yeah, well, I knew my life had become unmanageable because of the drinking. But I really didn't think I was powerless. I thought what I'm powerless over is that I'm crazy. It still was there. And so ultimately, I drank again because I moved away from my supports and and um, always that sadness won. When I relapsed, I was in graduate school and, and, um, uh, I remember thinking, you know, well, at the time I have a pretty good relationship. I'm a high functioning graduate student and, my mental health is is pretty good. So alcohol shouldn't be a problem now. <laughs> <laughs> that was incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> you did some field research. I did and, yeah. for two years. Yeah. 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 What ended that your two years of seeing whether you could manage it and did that? You know, that's a funny story because when you said field research, I actually did research. So I was working in an alcohol research lab. So I took home a breathalyzer and I would drink and I would record like a diary card. Drink number seven. How much do I want to kill myself? How much do I want to hurt myself? How sad am I? And what's my BAC? You know, and I have a stack of journals, which I haven't even I've looked at maybe once or twice, but you can hardly read them in there. I call them my relapse journals. And, you know, it was just every night blackout drinking at the time in chat rooms on the internet. I knew at after nine drinks, I couldn't speak well on the phone. And so I would chat online and then at a certain point I couldn't even chat online. So I did actually research and it just got more and more miserable and the obsession about suicide was just so persistent and so painful. Um, and then another bottom, I uh, got in a, a car accident and, um, you know, the back half of my car was kind of turned sideways from what the car that had hit me. And my first thought when I saw the, uh, the police lights coming was, oh my gosh, they're going to smell alcohol because I was, had been drinking. And so I put a bunch of cough drops in my mouth, you know, and then it hit me. This is not Mm. okay. Mm. And my therapist said, you know, I think, I think it's time to get some more help. Mm-hmm. And did you quit as readily? No. That, no. <laughs> no. I would uh, stock uh, 12-step meetings. So mm. I, there was a, a clubhouse and a liquor store within a block from my house. I would drive around the clubhouse and be like, oh, that's where people go in. Okay. Because I knew I'd been in the 12-step meetings mm-hmm. before and I knew about it. And, you know, I, I stocked them. I, I didn't go in and just went on and on and on just the same desperately wanting to get well, but not believing that was possible. Mm -hmm. (music) 
What do you think of uh, of AA and the in the twelve step model? What part or parts of it were most crucial for your healing and continued sobriety? So I do think that two things are ultimately what saved my life. Uh, besides, you know, overall kind of, I, I do believe there's some kind of higher power that, you know, but like the things, the physical things that saved my life, I think are, are the 12 steps and DBT, dialectical behavior therapy. And with the 12 steps, uh, there's just, everyone has this like life lesson in it that I don't feel we get, we don't get it, it taught, you know, that there's some things we are powerless over, but there's other things we aren't and that we can't control the things we're not power or that we're powerless over. And we have to focus on the things we can have power over. And, and if we come to believe that it's not just us that gets us well, it's something else. It's other people, it's love, it's the universe, you know, whatever. And, you know, just each, each of the steps, I think, got me closer to sanity. Um, I just somehow in my history, I didn't learn those things because I was shut off. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there were lessons, but I wasn't present for them. Yeah. My, my sense is um, if you go to 12-step meetings and you never get a sponsor, mm-hmm. that that's like, going to the pizzeria only having the, I don't know, chips. Yeah. <laughs> like soup. A Coke soup. Because <laughs> I, I work with a lot of people. I've been in meetings and I mean, my, I always ask them, did you get a sponsor? Mm-hmm. Well, no. And I mean, mm-hmm. what's your thought on that? Oh yeah. What? I mean, I, it's like without a sponsor, it's like doing, it's like doing therapy without therapists. <laughs> I mean, maybe not quite, but. A bike, bike race without a the, bike. I mean, yeah. yeah. I yeah. need, say, someone else because I'm my as as they say my best thinking got me here so you know I I need something outside myself and sometimes that's a sponsor and sometimes that's the group and you know so Mm -hmm. yeah uh I had to be just completely given and say I'll do whatever you tell me to do I'll go to meetings I'll get up or in the more early in the morning I'll call you every day I'll do all these things I hate doing (laughs) um if it's gonna help Mm -hmm. Some listeners uh, know about DBT, Mm -hmm. dialectical behavior therapy, but um, I would guess the majority don't. Mm -hmm. Could you start, Annie, maybe describe a little what DBT is and then uh, in more detail how it really helped you transform the way you feel and function? Sure. So in some ways, similar to CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, because it affects, you know, works on your cognitions, your thoughts and your um, behaviors. But uh, it was developed for people with uh, borderline personality disorder or like chronic suicidal thoughts and urges and self-harm and stuff. So I w- wish I had those things. And so the first step in it is is mindfulness. And I remember I was in a DBT group, that therapist I talked about, she was a DBT therapist. And so I was in a group and the first group, we did one minute of mindfulness. And 
everyone was like, oh, that was so relaxing. <laughs> and I was like, that was awful. They were lying. What? All of them were. Yeah. Cause... They asked how, I said, they asked, you know, how was that for you? And I was like, it was the worst minute of my life. Why would I want to be alone and present with my thoughts? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to get away from. Mm-hmm. That's the, you know, first part of that is, is being able to tolerate and just, and have a, a way to be present in the world that is man is manageable. Like you learn kind of how to just be in the moment without, you know, it's not like pushing away, you know, it's, it's just, uh, focus. I, for me, it was focusing on other things, you know, instead of focusing on my thoughts, I would turn my focus to my breathing or something. And that was something I could grab onto. So as I learned how to do it, I could do it for three minutes and then five minutes and, the self-loathing was still there for a long time, but I was also able to do it. And then the other parts, uh, let me, can I just stop yeah, you yeah, there? Yeah. Why do you think mindfulness is step one in DBT? Cause you said you started with that and yeah, and spent uh, well, a lot it's of time like on core that. mindfulness. They call it cause it's the core of everything because, you know, part of things like DBT or the difference between that and CBT is that, your instant goal is not to change, change, change everything. It's like, let's get where you are first and be able to be in the moment and accept. It was, it's an acceptance uh, piece, not resignation. I had to learn that difference. Um, it's not like resigning because I was really good at that. Like, oh, it's my life and not resigned to it. But just being present with it and not being so reactive, not trying to change the moment right away because – the ways I changed the moment were self-destructive. And so this was be just being in the moment. And that as that, as the distance between like the negative thinking and the behavior, there's a few minutes in there. That's like where the power is because that's where I can make a choice. Like, Oh, I'm feeling anger and I want to do this desperately. And if I can just wait, a minute or two and it it was miraculous they're like it will go away and I was like no it's not gonna it's not gonna go away for like days Mm. but as I got better at it it's like oh my gosh like it's less you know and Mm. and so even that that sense of you said feeling like just poisoned with so much mm -hmm. awfulness emotional Mm -hmm. maelstrom if if you wrote it out and observed it, it it would go away. Yeah, with some other skills, you know. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that that's not the only skill in the therapy. You know, there's a just stress tolerance that you do when you're in crisis. You know, it's like when the dysregulation is at its tip and you're at that wave. You know, which I was so glad to hear other people had that. Um, that there's things you can do to just stay alive and stay safe. Yeah, such as what, um, what's been most helpful for you? Well, my favorite is distraction, as you might imagine. And that one is just, you know, when you're at the tippy tippy end, you just do anything you can to, besides drugs to and cutting to distract yourself. Now, we didn't, when I was learning this, we didn't have phone games. Now I use phone games for my distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, but finding things that, will uh, discharge some of the emotion or just get you through to keep you alive for 15 minutes or keep you safe for 15 minutes. 
And then um, self-soothing is the is another one, you know, just doing something that feels good, something. Mm. And that was really hard to find at first. But, you know, that's why I was a big fan of the ice holding ice cubes, um, mm. because if you hold them really tight, <laughs> they start to burn. And I and like that. That felt good. Yeah. yeah. And I I miss I misused the snapping the you snap a rubber band on your wrist. And I did that a little too much. So I was cut off from <laughs> this. <laughs> The snapping, but you know, something that is an intense sensation, a super hot shower, a super cold shower, a, um, you know, something sensory that just uh, pulls you along for a couple minutes and gets some distance between that wave of pain and, and behavior, mm. even just saying, okay, I won't hurt myself for 15 minutes. And there were times that 15 minutes later, I would then do it. Mm. But a lot of times I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that process, so A, of learning self-soothing that's not drug, alcohol, mm-hmm. or self-harm. So for you, it was a painful something mm-hmm. or a shocking thing. Mm-hmm. But then to, I'm imagining that took quite a bit of time to actually transition to something that most people on the street would say, oh, yeah, that's actually a soothing thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I had to say, is this is this ongoing self-injury or is this a coping skill? But you know, the hard thing is when you're coming off drugs and alcohol, nothing feels as good. And so it's like trying to find anything that is just, okay, it's not going to feel as good, but it'll get me through. And then over time, finding things, you know, I no longer find ice cubes and snapping rubber bands and things like that soothing. So yeah, what do you do now? Like when you have these regular bouts, these, the PMS hopelessness mm-hmm. that, that comes with some unfortunate regularity, what do you do now to, to self-soothe? I would say I do tend to use more distraction than self-soothing. I think of it as, you know, just uh, surviving it and putting off any uh, destructive behavior. And not that that's like a big urge anymore. It's more just, okay, Annie, you can get through this, you know? So it's like a a little bit of self-soothing cognitively. And sometimes I can't do that. So if I can force myself to call someone, you know, that's soothing. Get a massage, you know, just even like massage lotion into my hands or something, you know, mm-hmm. it's like anything that feels good. And, you know, a, a Netflix binge is, mm-hmm. you know, distraction and they all they're fine. Those are fine. You mm-hmm. know, it's like I don't if I'm not using that every day to distract from my life, you know, if I'm using it, why well, I, I do watch Netflix a lot. But, you know, if the distraction and, you know, it is kind of like a intentional avoidance and it's okay if all you're trying to do is survive mm-hmm. you know yeah we often think of i think in mental health we often think of dbt dialectical behavior therapy is associated with either borderline personality disorder or borderline traits or borderline personality structure. Um, where would you say you, you fit in on that? Mm-hmm. Um, because it sounds like you had the horrific emotional dysregulation mm-hmm. and self-loathing and you, you had a lot of that sort of checklist mm-hmm. things, but yeah, I remember when I first saw the criteria, someone sat down with me and said, this is what we think you have. And it, I felt an incredible sense of relief. I was like, Oh, I'm not crazy. I'm just borderline. <laughs> <laughs> then later I found out 
yeah. uh, how people sometimes feel about yeah. that diagnosis. But but we had an early ep- episode on this yeah. podcast where a woman talked about this very same thing, mm-hmm. that there was actually great relief oh. in seeing that this uh, syndrome or personality disorder or personality structure is a thing. Yes. Because yes. you're like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm not losing my mind. Mm-hmm. I but this is actually something that many, many, many people struggle with. So for you, mm-hmm. that was... Oh, totally. Yeah. And that I got the book. Uh, someone gave me the book, Lost in the... I think it's Lost in the Mirror. And it talked about, you know, when you're borderline, you feel like X, Y, Z. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. You know, in over time... So that was really soothing and really helpful at the time to look at that. But over time, as I got into recovery, you know, when I look at those criteria now they don't fit um and i've asked you know my therapist like you think that's still there and she said no and i said well i thought it was supposed to be like pervasive and lifelong and it wasn't my whole life and you know i wasn't always like this and and it it, and it's you know did i just get really good dbt or and i learned when i relapsed that it came back you know, when that I was pretty stable, like I still had kind of a dysphoria, dysthymia when I was um, not drinking, but the the unstable uh, relationships and the, they were much, much less the emptiness, the abandonment, you know, they were still there, but much, much less. And then when I started drinking again, it was like, oh, it's back. So nowadays, when I look back, I'm like, hmm, there should be something like an alcohol induced personality disorder. And yeah. I think be- that's, a th- I think that's a thing. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do that. I mean, I see that a lot of my addiction work, people mm-hmm. come in and it's not just the addiction behaviors that are driving the family away, but it's, mm-hmm. it's personality disorder mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And then people go into recovery and that stuff goes away. Oh, right. Yeah. And it looks the same. I mean, it's, it looks like antisocial, narcissistic, you know, it's like, then you get clean and sober and it might still be there. But I think for a lot of people, I mean, I know a lot of women who thought I was, you know, borderline or, or histrionic or something. And, um, now, or, you know, I think about the, the discomfort. I, I mean, people tell me now, it still kind of boggles my mind. They're like, you're so easy to be with. You're just so fun and light. And you're like sunshine when you walk in the room. <laughs> That's so weird. It's still weird. But, it's like, huh, that is the opposite of how I felt and really was in the world, especially when I was drinking and, and you know, not recovering. Mm-hmm. So now you, you work as a clinical psychologist and... Mm-hmm. Um, and I hear great things about you Hmm. and I'm curious how you use, um, both what you learned in DBT and in 12 step and how do those come into the room as you sit with people in terrible distress and people Hmm. where you were years ago? Well, the, I think the best thing, and I don't believe you have to have had a mental illness and a, a, an addiction to understand. But the one thing I do have, I think is that I do believe I've visited the depth of darkness. You know, I mean, I've had suicide attempts and, and I believe I got there. And so 
when I see people teetering on the edge or who've who've gotten there, I do think, you know, there's a thing in 12-step programs. They say, no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. And I used to think, like, how in the world could this help other people, this, this horrible pain? And I just know. And I think people know I know. I mean, I don't have to tell them anything. It's just I... I get it. I feel it. I can be in the room with it. And no matter how weird they're acting out in the world and, uh, uh, you know, I can sit with them with it and, um, know and see, oh, you know, this might be helpful. This might be helpful. You know, these basics, you know, most of the people I work with have, have mental health and addiction. And so, um, I know that not everything that worked for me will work for that person, but, I can feel the hope and I, I don't ever lose hope and now, you know, I mean, mm. at, at my job, it's like other people are like, why do you keep trying with that person? Like, they're just, they're gone. They're not, they're not getting well. And I've just seen it in me and other people that it, there is no, <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen people work, get back onto a life that feels like it's worth living and I would say a life worth living sober, which is, was mind boggling to me for a while. Like mm. not just a life that I can live, but a life I can live sober and actually not be, feel crazy all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, it's not all happiness, you know, but it's, I'm a person in the world that, and I know people can have some level of that experience and feel connection with another person and I try to I try to do that in session you know in in therapies just just you know we're just here together and your pain's okay you know it's okay it's almost like a level of humility that as you said your you know your colleagues might say this person's hopeless they're Mm -hmm. not going to make it and because of where you've been Mm -hmm. and I I think in my work there's a number of people that I was sure they were going to die mm-hmm. and knock on wood none of them have in oh, fact some yeah. of the people that i was most sure were going to die are really thriving now yep. and a number of the people that i've of you know of my eight suicides i'd say mm. seven of them i had no idea yeah but that just that helps i think with some humility to think you know who knows mm-hmm. and if we can pour some hope into people and yeah. just wait it out you just don't give up yeah I have a side question. I'm, it seems like you would be an expert in this. Um, I'm imagining that there's some number of people listening today who know someone, a friend, a family member who's self-harming. Mm. And I think that revelation can scare parents and oh, yeah. siblings. And I mean, do you have any thoughts or wisdom or guidance for, for people who know of someone that they care about the self-harming and mm-hmm. Is there anything they can do or say, or what, what, how should they understand that? Because I know many people have come to me like at dinner parties or just random places, mm-hmm. and they hear I'm a psychiatrist, and they say, "Well, can I ask you something?" Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually one of the things I get asked the most. Oh, I have a friend or family member who's self-harming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it is hard because when I think back to what people could have said to me, I know I just had a lot of experiences with what not to say, and. I, 
I think. Um, what would that be? Okay, so <laughs> let's hear, let's my hear, favorite. Your top. Your top. Is, of do not say list. Once when I hurt myself, uh, kind of bad, and was in a an ambulance, and the EMT was the EMTs were talking. Well, one of them said, "Why would you do that to yourself?" And then when I was in the ER, the nurse said something like, you know, she was super fast, like trying to like, you know, sew me up and then, you know, uh, say, well, I have, you know, she said something about I've people with real, with not real illnesses, but something like I've really sick people who need my help. I, mm. I got to go. And I was like, Ooh, Ouch. yeah, like, okay. Oh. You know, and just the shame stuff. And I guess it's just not, um, I mean, it's always don't overreact or underreact, you know, overreaction is more common, I think is, you know, why don't, why don't do that? You know, you can't do that or saying you can't, it's like, that's the person's coping strategy. So it's kind of like when you discover your kid smoking weed or something that it's like, okay, I think I wonder if someone had said to me, Hey, I, I see uh, you're struggling and I, I see, and I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't have wanted them to see the scars, Mm. but if they did to say, you know, I saw some, some cuts on you and I just want you to know that I, I see you're in pain and I want to help if Mm -hmm. I can. Mm -hmm. And, um, interesting. So not questioning, but just witnessing. mm -hmm. It's like, I noticed this. Yeah, I'm wondering if you're in pain. I'm guessing you're in pain, but yeah. but not because like you're right. I think the tendency would be if it's your child or mm-hmm. or your girlfriend to start asking why. Mm-hmm. How long are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Why do you do this? Right. When are you going to stop? Like mm-hmm. we have to send you. You know, you have to go get help. Yeah. This is so screwed up. Yeah. Um, why? 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 Right. And all you know, feeling like you're on trial. Yeah. And maybe just to. I mean, it sounds weird, but to normalize and to say, you know, we all end up finding something that seems to we all have pain sometimes and not to minimize their pain but we all end up finding something that seems to get us through life and sometimes those things end up not being great for us and you know I've got stuff too and and um I think it's kind that's kind of the same thing with with drinking and drugs you know it's like when you, I want to help and, but I don't want to push it. And I want you to know that I'm here and I love you and, and I love you no matter what. Mm. And, uh, when you want, I'm happy to, I know people can get well and can ease pain. And, and so I want to help you get that if I can. It's it's such a bummer, Annie, isn't it? That the most powerful stuff that can make you feel better is also bad for you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Stimulants and cocaine mm-hmm. and vodka and mm-hmm. cutting and like the stuff that really works, mm-hmm. the stuff that works fast and powerfully. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's usually a big nightmare mm-hmm. and the stuff that works well, but over time in a healthy way, like mindfulness and running and, <laughs> you know, even games on your phone mm-hmm. or, those take much pr- more practice mm-hmm. and intention and mm-hmm. they just, they don't, they don't work as fast. And I think and that's, you, yeah, you don't see the benefit until you've done it um, enough times mm-hmm. when it doesn't work until it, it's like, Oh, this actually really helped. 
Yeah. I, I think of uh, if I ever wrote a book, I, I'd want to have it be about, like, I called it the allure of self-destruction <laughs> because it's so alluring, you know, just wanting to just have, you know, either pain or sabotage or, you know, just destroying ourselves. And, uh, you know, what is it about that that's appealing and mm. the many ways we do it? I'm guessing, you know, half our listeners right now are totally getting that. And the other yeah, half are like, saying, what? What is she talking about? Um, yeah. And, uh, but, you know, I feel like everybody kind of does it. You know, I mean, like we sabotage a relationship. You know, we have fear of success and we don't go for it. And we just do things over and over expecting different results and and that may not be you know hitting ourselves or or, you know smoking crack or you know it may be that we spend too much money it may be that we sleep all the time and don't get help and it may be um just our patterns with people that keep us from connecting in, in a true intimate way and i mean we all that's the thing is we all do something Unless we're just happy all the time, which would just be weird. I, I assume that maybe those people exist. I don't know. I don't think they exist. I don't. I don't have never really been around one. I think they'd be really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think they're at Disneyland. Something like they that. They work yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, and then they go home <laughs> and they do crack. Do crack. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th- um, well, thank you so much yeah. for joining today. This has been really wonderful to have you yes i i'm happy to do it i you know i've never really told a story in this way and um you know it is a little weird because i'm a psychologist and you know just being out um but uh i think we have to do that we have to tell tell people that you know there's help there's hope don't give up you know yeah as they say in 12 steps don't give up before the miracle happens and it may not be a miracle, but it, it's maybe it is. I don't know. Yeah. But it's but I like, think, you know, I think, Annie, you have way more street cred, I believe, as a psychologist, having been through what you've been through. Mm-hmm. Again, like I said on a prior episode, it's not that you need to have pets to be a veterinarian, but mm-hmm. it seems like it would make you mm-hmm. a better veterinarian. And I think if you're a psychologist or therapist who hasn't been through some real darkness yourself, Go out and find some. <laughs> in, the sh- in the better. show notes, Annie and I will put the various kind of things that we recommend for <laughs> therapists darkness, who want to get better. But that's not too that's lethal, job, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, semi-lethal yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website bftapodcast.com where you can learn more about us and this project get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories as well as additional resources and music credits you can also email us with comments or story requests if you have time please rate us on itunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide much gratitude to my good friend chris johnson who does our sound and thank you for listening to back from the abyss May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.